Good evening, good day, everybody. Uh, great to be back with you all. Welcome to the 77th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Um, and today it's going to be a slightly shorter episode. I've got a bad throat, so I'm going to keep it around 60-75 minutes. So let us see all who all is here. I can see Sagar, Aryan, Anurag, Gaurav, Ayan, Vineet, Harshida, Vihan, Kunal, Kedar, History G, Shailesh, Prabal, Sampriti, Kumwar, Samar, Samrat, Watts, Kakashi, Hatake, Tejas, Ishwar Roshan, Amal, Arora, Rakesh, Mistri, Shorya, Chauhan, Aryan, Vishal, Manoj, Dungar Singh, Parth, Ashok Kumar, Smriti, Srinivas, Ganpat Vagela, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Nice to be back among your midst. And uh, let us get going. Let's get straight into the questions with uh, question number one. Let's find where is question number one. What is question number one? The question number one is by Ayan Chakravarti. Is or rather was the Manusmriti modified by British people? So you know what? I haven't uh, studied the Manusmriti in any great detail. And whatever I've seen is uh, small pieces here and there, snippets all English translations and these English translations that we uh, have were mostly done either by British people or during British during the British occupation of India. And therefore, one cannot take these uh, translations to be the authoritative versions of the Manusmriti because we know that there's always, even if the translator has good intentions, there's always a loss in translation. See, Sanskrit is a very nuanced language. English is a one-dimensional language. And when you translate things from Sanskrit to English, you're going to end up losing context and meaning. For instance, the word yagya, yagna, is translated as sacrifice in English. But in English, sacrifice means killing something. A yagna is not killing anything. But yagna is always translated as sacrifice. Uh, similarly, these people, they translate dasa as slave, which is nonsense, uh, dharma as religion, which is again nonsense, and so on. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of loss in translation, and you're going to lose the original context and meaning. And therefore, even if some translations were done with good intentions, they are going to end up uh, misportraying, misrepresenting the actual original text. So... Uh, and in some cases, you may have act genuine, I mean, deliberate uh, distortions that are introduced into the text by the translator. So my, uh, the uh, thing I'm going to say, what I'm going, to, what I'm trying to say is that you cannot rely upon translations of the manuscript into English. What's more reliable is translations from the original Sanskrit into Indian languages. That is way more reliable because Indian languages do preserve some a significant amount of the uh, context and nuance that Sanskrit has. So a better way to study the Manuskriti would be to uh, look at the Indian language translations either into Hindi or some other Indian language. The best way to study the Manuskriti is to look at the original Sanskrit text in case you have an understanding and knowledge of Sanskrit. So that's what I can say. Uh, is it modified by British people? Well, I haven't studied in great detail. I am not a scholar of the Manuskriti, so I can't answer for sure. But there is a high probability that certain uh, deliberate mistranslations 
would certainly have been, in, been introduced into the text, into the translation, especially if it was done by British people or by, let's say, Marxist, leftist historians. So therefore, one must be very careful while studying the text. Yogesh says, why Steve Jobs, Mark Jacobs and many more successful people came to India and what did they learn? <clears throat> I don't know about Mark Jacobs. I'm aware of the fact that Steve Jobs did come to India. So Steve Jobs came to India, I think in the 1970s, early 1970s. And he came with the purpose of seeking spiritual enlightenment. That's why he came to India. So he was a spiritually inclined person and he was also dabbling in various psychedelic drugs, LSD, etc. when he was a student in the US. And uh, so he wanted uh, the real deal, not the chemical experiences. So he came to India. I think he came to India searching for the, the, the spiritual guru uh, whose name was Neem Karoli Baba. And I believe that by the time Steve Jobs reached India, Neem Karoli Baba had already passed away. And then he wandered around India for a few months, seven, eight months, I believe. He got exposure to some other gurus. Uh, he got some exposure to, to Buddhist practices, etc. Uh, the main source of inspiration for him was, I think, Neem Karoli Baba. After he left India, he also got exposed, when he back, when, went back to the US, he got exposed to Dhyana meditation, or which is now nowadays known as Zen meditation. So all of these influences, all dharmic influences, uh, they formed the core of his spiritual outlook for the rest of his life. And uh, so that's what I can say. Uh, I don't. I am sure many other people also from the West came to India for such purposes. The Beatles are a good example. The English rock band, rock folk band, band the Beatles, they came to India. I am not sure if they were looking for spiritual enlightenment. I think they were looking for inspiration from Indian music. They were aware of the fact that Indian music is way more advanced than Western music. When I say Indian music, I mean Indian classical music. So they came to India. They met the sitar practitioner Pandit Ravi Shankar. So I think George Harrison, their lead guitarist, learned how to play the sitar from Ravi Shankar. They had a good lifelong friendship and so on. So yes, many of these people from the West, they came to India in order to attain some extra spiritual uh, heights or to gain some kind of knowledge which was not found in the West and so on. <clears throat> and they all went back uh, sufficiently enriched culturally and spiritually uh, going back from India, right? And when it comes to Steve Jobs, it kind of uh, influenced him very deeply, the entire Indian Dharmic experience. When he was diagnosed, I mean, after he left India, he became a vegetarian, I believe, vegan, vegetarian, I think vegan. Yes, and I think he was vegan for the rest of his life. He is officially described in his biography as a Buddhist, but well, most of his experiences and influences were Hindu. But of course, for the so for the sake of general palatability, palatability, they they will package it as being uh, Buddhist influences. You know, uh, Buddhism is essentially Hinduism repackaged for Western consumer audiences because Hinduism is too deep, too esoteric, too confusing for these small minds. So they repackage it as Buddhism. Uh, so Steve Jobs remained a vegetarian through the for the rest of his life, and when he was diagnosed with cancer. He tried to uh, 
uh, have himself treated through in 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 alternative medicine I, i don't know it was whether it was ayurveda or something else he tried to uh, change his diet to kill the cancer and all that so i think he took that too far if he had not done all those strange things he may have survived longer maybe even have beaten the cancer perhaps but he was so convinced about the power of what he had learned in india that he wanted to apply that even to curing cancer unfortunately it did not work you know he was a really intelligent person in that and yet he ended up making such a silly mistake anyhow so that's the reason why these people uh, came to india and that's what they learned i suppose <clears throat> right let's take the next question one second where's the next question here's the next question okay sunny sunny says uh, my question is the founder of the gupta uh, gupta dynasty was shri gupta but why does all the credit go to chandragupta the first and what was the role of ghatotkach in the gupta dynasty can you please explain okay good question so the gupta the empire the gupta dynasty uh, it was in power in uh, india for about nearly 3 centuries all right and the first the founder of the gupta dynasty is a king was a king called shri gupta who lived in the late 3rd century ad so he is the first king of the gupta dynasty he styled himself maharaj his son's name was ghatotkach and he lived in the late 3rd century until about 319 320 320 ad so that's about uh maybe 20 30 years that he was in power again uh he styled himself maharaj so these guys they had a small kingdom shri gupta and his son ghatotkach they both had a small kingdom in kind of in the region of magadh right in uh, north northern india to the to the eastern part of india now the son of ghatotkach happened to be chandragupta the first now chandragupta the first expanded his kingdom significantly and he did not style himself maharaj he styled himself maharaja dhiraj which means emperor not merely a king he was an emperor he defeated lots of other kings in a very short period of time he expanded his empire his kingdom significantly and it became so big that he started calling himself the king of kings emperor maharaja dhiraj so so chandragupta lived from around uh, reigned as emperor from 319 ad to around 3 350 ad most likely 335 or 350 there's some confusion but some somewhere around there so the thing is shri gupta had a small kingdom he was content and happy with a small kingdom his son ghatotkach had the same small kingdom and he was also content and happy with that same small kingdom chandragupta the first the grandson of shri gupta he was not content with a small kingdom he expanded in all directions and he became a genuine emperor he tra- he transformed his ancestral little kingdom into a proper empire and therefore we give credit to chandragupta why should we give credit to to shri gupta he was the founder of the dynasty but he did not do anything significant he had no significant achievements and therefore the credit goes to chandragupta for actually establishing the gupta empire the dynasty was established by shri gupta but the 
empire was established by Chandragupta the first. Now, Chandragupta the first was by no means the greatest emperor of his of his lineage. His son Samudragupta. Now, this is the real deal. This guy, his entire career as king as emperor was one extended military campaign. That is Samudragupta. Good God, what a guy he was. The hero of a thousand battles. He led from the front. He wanted war, war, war. He expanded in all directions. He powerful navy. He used that navy to conquer all the way to southern India, uh, to, to Madurai and, and further further south. So in the entirety of India came under Samudragupta's uh, dominion. Right? So he lived until about, he reigned until about 375 AD. His son Chandragupta I expanded even further. He conquered uh, Gandhar. He conquered uh, Bahalik, Balk. Right, he conquered all the uh, whoever was was uh, ruling there. Everybody trembled at the mere uh, sound of his name. He kicked out the Scythians from Gujarat, the Mahakshatrapas, and so on. So you know, so Chandragupta the second was also great. His son Kumaragupta did not expand the empire further, but he ruled it very steadily and very ably. So, so that is uh, Chandra. Uh, that is Kumar Gupta the first, and Kumar Gupta the Kumar Gupta's son was Skanda Gupta the Great, the last great Gupta emperor who repulsed wave after wave after wave of Hunnic invasion in India. He he swore an oath that he would not sleep on a bed and he would not eat from a plate as long as the Huns were trying to invade India. I will sleep on a on on the on the floor and I will eat from a from a leaf as long as there is a threat to my country. And he spent his whole life fighting off the Huns, and he succeeded. So, as you can see, the deeds of Chandragupta I, Samudragupta, Chandragupta II, Kumaragupta I, and Skandagupta are immense compared to the deeds of Shri Gupta and Ghatotkach, whose deeds actually pale in comparison with their extraordinarily illustrious descendants. And therefore, all the credit goes to them and not to Shri Gupta and to Ghatotkach, who happened to be the first two kings of the dynasty, but not emperors by any means. Right? So I hope that answers your question. <clears throat> all right. Uh, Russians and Ukrainians cla claim that Hinduism came from Russia because of the Mezine swastika, which was found in an ivory figurine of a female bird, which is at least 18,000 years old. Your thoughts on this? Okay, let's take a look at what this uh, swastika looks like. All right, one second. Mm. Let us, let me share my screen. Okay, Ukraine swastika. Ukraine, what what is it? The Mezine swastika. So let's see what it looks like. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah, this is the uh, alleged swastika that is found on this bird, this uh, carving of a bird in Ukraine. So this is what it looks like from the side, the bird. It's clearly uh, the figurine of a bird. It's an ivory carving. This is what it looks like. It's quite small. And if you look at the details of the pattern, this is what the pattern looks like. So as you can see, it's not really a swastika. 
it's not really a swastika it's it's some kind of geometric whorls that you could interpret from some angles as something that kind of somewhat resembles a swastika it is not a proper swastika it is not a real swastika it is something that is reminiscent in some ways of the shape of the swastika and as you can see the mezin carving is not a swastika that's what it says this article so uh so it is completely incorrect to to claim on the basis of this particular figurine that the swastika originates in uh, ukraine or in russia and therefore hinduism came from this region first of all i have never made the claim that the swastika is something that emerged out of hinduism that is not the case <coughs> excuse me the swastika is a uh, a universal symbol of auspiciousness that seems to have emerged in multiple parts of the world apparently simultaneously it seems to have emerged more than 10000 years ago right uh, today if you look at the prevalence of the swastika today you will find it is prevalent only mostly in the dharmic world which is india uh the various buddhist nations of southeast asia hindu buddhist nations of southeast asia uh china tibet indonesia burma thailand etc right laos vietnam and so on also in korea also in japan and in mongolia as well in japan even today if you go to google maps you will find that uh temples shinto and buddhist temples are marked with swastikas so uh that's where the swastika is prevalent today and therefore it is uh, some people kind of make the claim that it originated in hinduism or in the dharmic religions dharmic uh, culture which is not the case you will find swastikas even in africa you will find swastika uh, motifs even in north america and south america among the indigenous peoples of america in their artwork even in their ancient stone carvings and all so on like that so it appears that this symbol of auspiciousness was universally prevalent across the planet and it emerged apparently simultaneously a very long time ago right uh and and this bird that they talk about this mezin bird swastika carving thing it's not 18000 years old it's about i don't know 14 15000 years old roughly i'm saying give or take a couple of thousand years maybe here and there so and therefore the, this does not constitute any kind of proof that hinduism came from outside of india right because the swastika is not exclusive to hinduism it was prevalent in many cultures many many cultures in the past among the romans among the crete uh, people of crete among the minoans among the ancient greeks it uh, we, we you find uh, swastikas in the ancient city of hisarlik ilion troy in the ruins of troy and in so many other places right so it is not something that's exclusive to hinduism and therefore if you find a ancient swastika somewhere else it doesn't mean hinduism came from there there's no correlation and it's very interesting to speculate as to how did this this geometrical figure the swastika become so prevalent globally and uh, become a universal symbol of auspiciousness that may have something to do with an ancient astronomical event it's something that we can discuss separately but i hope this answers the question
Karthik says recently a, a report came from the government that the reason for the CDS helicopter crash is bad weather. What are your views on it? See, I had uh, answered a question about the about the helicopter crash of General Bipin Singh Rawat. And I had said that an investigation will be done, a very thorough investigation will be done. Uh, the, <clears throat> the cause of the of the air crash will be ascertained, but it will not it will not be communicated to the people. See, so the thing is this: India is a nation that has lots of enemies. We know that. We have enemies beyond our borders, but the bigger problem is we have lots of way more enemies within our own borders. People who do not consider themselves Indians, people who hate their own country, and people who work for certain external forces. And such people are even in positions of great power. I'm not pointing figures at anybody in particular, but this is indeed the case. So if you really make if you make the real uh results of your investigation public, then your enemies will come to know what you have found. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to do that. So I had said that they will find the real cause, but they will communicate something uh, something not very specific to the public. You know, something like, it's, it was either, the best the best thing to say is bad bad weather. Bad weather contributed to the, to the, uh, to the crash. So we have to take this with uh, in under advisement, we have to take this with a, with a grain of salt. Uh, it does not make any sense for the armed forces and the government to reveal the real cause of the crash to our enemies. We don't want them to know what we know, and therefore, it is it is expected. I I am uh, I was not surprised at all when this uh, statement was made that the crash was caused by bad weather. The actual cause of the crash is. In my opinion, something else. I don't have the answer. I don't have inside information. But I am certain that bad weather is not the cause of the crash. This helicopter is built to withstand any kind of bad weather. It's a military helicopter. It's one of the top of the shelf military helicopters. It can take RPG fire, rocket propelled grenade fire. So what about a little bit of bad weather? Come on. So I think there's something else that happened. And... um, so the government by now knows what really happened. The army by now knows what really happened. Um, the intelligence apparatus of the country knows what's happened. And I hope that uh, whoever has done this will be will be dealt with, and will be uh, and justice will be meted out to the to whoever has done this, whoever the powers are, because it's not the first time. <clears throat> something like this has happened in India. Yeah, that's all I can say <laughs> for now. So, you know, that that's my view about this. Karan says, why do ancient Brahmins, why do, why did ancient Brahmins use Sanskrit and Vedas for themselves and not for all people? So, my dear friend, Karan, where did you get this information that ancient Brahmins were so powerful they kept Sanskrit and the Vedas only for themselves? And they forced everybody to to speak other languages and read other books? Where do you get such nonsensical information, my dear friend? Who taught you this? Who taught you this? Was it your school teacher, your class teacher, your history teacher? Was it your NCR textbooks? Or was it uh, your favorite TV serial? 
or was it your favorite news channel who taught you this nonsense what evidence do you have that ancient brahmins used sanskrit and vedas only for themselves and not for all people if there is no source for this claim then how can you make this claim right there is no evidence there is not a single shred of evidence that corroborates what you have claimed and this is something i see all the time brahmins are evil brahmins did this brahmins did that you know in the ancient days who wielded the power do you know where power comes from mao zedong said power comes from the barrel of a gun in ancient times there were no guns but there was the blade of a sword so the power in the ancient days came from the blade of the sword who wielded the swords was it the brahmins who wielded the swords no it was not the brahmins who wielded the swords it was the kshatriyas who wielded the swords they are the guys who had the power not the brahmins the brahmins were powerless they were mere advisors they could be overruled any time if the kshatriyas so wished but india's society was harmonious it was a very well functioning society for thousands of years and therefore the brahmins had their place the kshatriyas had their, had their place everybody had their place and everybody everybody contributed to a harmonious society but today the marxist historians want you to believe that brahmins were the evil guys the, the objective is to destroy hinduism and the keepers and preservers of the knowledge are the brahmins and therefore if you want to destroy hinduism you have to attack the brahmins and that's why these these stories are perpetuated including in our textbooks these days and then people come up with these questions i don't blame you for believing this but you know <laughs> use your brain you know how things were right what do you what you are taught is that we had four castes four rigid castes the brahmins had the books the kshatriyas had the swords and whatever else so the guys who had the swords could the brahmins ever have forced them to do to do to do whatever if the kshatriyas wanted to study sanskrit and the vedas could the brahmins have prevented them but no our brains have been switched off we just don't think anymore ah. okay avinash says was the big was the <coughs> excuse me excuse me was the big bang a white hole right so what's a white hole let's begin with the white hole uh, we have spoken about the big bang i think a million times by now so i'm sure everybody knows what the big bang was like roughly right the beginning of the of the universe the birth of the universe so the big bang was a singularity and everything came out of the singularity <coughs> excuse me so the entire universe that we perceive around us it was all within the singularity and then the singularity expanded space time expansion it was not an explosion it was an expansion and that is the big bang it's called the big bang the name is misleading <clears throat> now what's a white hole a white hole is the exact opposite of a black hole so let's say you have a black hole sitting here right a good nice black hole sitting here in space and any object in its vicinity is going to be attracted towards it by the force of gravity because a black hole is a very powerful uh, gravitational pull and if you are close enough then you're going to be sucked into it eventually so 
in the future, anything that's near the black hole is going to end up inside the black hole. Now, a white hole is a certain set of solutions of the Einstein equations, which are the exact opposite of a black hole. So, if you look at, if you if you look at time flowing near a black hole, and if you take a video, let's say, you will see that slowly, slowly everything goes towards the black hole and is eventually sucked into it, right? If you do the same thing with the white hole, you will see time flowing in reverse, essentially. Everything is being pushed out from the white hole. A white hole is something that spews things outward, not inward like a black hole. So it's like a, it's like the mirror opposite of a black hole. Uh, so that's what it is. And the thing about a white hole is that it expels matter into space-time, right? Into space. So whatever is being ejected from a white hole, it goes into space. But in the case of the Big Bang, there was nothing outside the singularity. When the singularity expanded, that's what gave rise to space-time. So that is the key difference between a white hole and the Big Bang. It sounds like a white hole, but a white hole is inside space-time. But black hole, uh, but, but the but the singularity of the Big Bang itself contained all of the space-time that we see around us in the observable universe. So a white hole is, so the Big Bang was not a white hole. It was not. It was something completely different to see, to understand what it is. You need to look at the standard model and uh, yeah, standard model, standard model cosmology. So in short, the Big Bang was not a white hole. All right, what's the next question? Yes, this is by Javed Mustafa. Mughals and Delhi Sultans made India their home, lived and died here. Chinggis Khan knew no principles. Even Changez Khan praised Jalaluddin for his bravery. Okay, the first statement is the Mughals and Delhi Sultans made India their home, lived and died there. You know, my dear friend Javed, how about I come to your house? I make it my house. Huh? And I live there and die there and impose my will upon whoever is living in your house. Would you like it, my dear friend? These Mughals and Delhi Sultans, did they come to India after applying for a visa? Who gave them the permission to make India their home? Did the people of India want these barbarians in their home? No. So please. Just because they came to India and made it their home doesn't make them some great uh, paradigms of virtue and secularism. They were terrorists, they were barbarians, not because of their religion, because of their behavior. Nobody is a barbarian by blood or by religion. You are a barbarian, not you, Javed, I don't mean you. A person is a barbarian only by their actions, not by their blood or by their religion, by their actions and by the actions of the Delhi Sultans and the Turko Mughals and all these invaders, the Turkic invaders, they were all barbarians. They behaved in a brutal, bestial way, in a bestial manner. They were all barbarians and terrorists. That's what they were. That's, the, that's part one. Genghis Khan knew no principle, blah, 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 blah. No examples given. And even Chinggis Khan praised Jalaluddin. That's what you say. <laughs> Let me explain the bravery of Jalaluddin. Yeah? Jalaluddin Khwarezmi was the last Sultan of Khwarezm. He was hated by his own brother. 
he was hated by his own grandmother, Birke Khatun. She preferred to be captured by the Mughals, uh, by the Mongols, than to go with her grandson uh, in his uh, <coughs> bid to escape the great Sri Chinggis Khan. So this coward Jalaluddin, he left his grandmother behind. He took some of his uh, close relatives and their wives and all the women folk and whatever was left of his army and he tried to escape to India. He made it to India. He crossed the Hindu Kush, came into Afghanistan, <coughs> Gandhar, which was then India. And he went further south into Punjab. And that's where he was, that's where Chinggis Khan caught up with him on the banks of the Sindhu River. That's where the great, uh, not great, the battle of the Indus happened 800 years ago. 800 years and some months ago in the year 1221, in the winter of 1221. And Jalaluddin's army was totally annihilated. And we know what Jalaluddin did. The great, brave Jalaluddin, what he did, he left his wives, concubines and family behind and he crossed the river and escaped with his life. Do you think Genghis Khan would praise him for this bravery? For leaving his women folk and family behind? to be enslaved by the Mongols? Do you really think Chinggis Khan would have praised Jalaluddin for that act of cowardice? Come on! I just don't get it why these people want to, uh, want to portray Jalaluddin as a great, brave paradigm of, uh, of courage and bravery. In this story, there is this uh, persistent story that Chinggis Khan praised Jalaluddin and said that every father should have a son like this. You know where this story comes from? It comes from the Islamic historian uh, Juwaini. Juwaini was a Persian historian. I, uh, I believe it was Juwaini who came up with this fictitious story and Juwaini was not even present there during the Battle of the, Parv uh, of the Indus. He wasn't even there. You know, there is not a single authentic quote of Chinggis Khan that has survived until today. There are many apocryphal tales about the, Chinggis Khan said this and Chinggis Khan did, said that. The only true record of his life that is reliable is the secret history of the Mongols, which does not contain a single quote for, from Chinggis Khan. Everything else is hearsay. You know what they say in Hindi? Kahi suni baate. That's what it is. So please stop lying about Jalaluddin the coward. He was a coward par excellence. Okay, this is by Andre from Canada. Uh, you okay? What's the question? You have made a case for case that Chinggis Khan had principles, but did he hold his sons to those same principles? He certainly would have had the power to do so, but did he? If he did not, then I would suggest that those principles were not really principles. All right, <coughs> uh, fair point. So. We know that Chinggis Khan treated his sons no different from any other soldier in his army. Uh, of course, they were all princes and they were all destined to have kingdoms of their own. <coughs> so what he did is that he put his various sons under the tutelage of various generals of his. For instance, his eldest son, Jochi, whose paternity was under question, by the way, his eldest son, Jochi, was put under the tutelage of the great Subodai. Subodai was one of the greatest Mongol generals of all time. Much of what Chinggis Khan achieved was because of the uh, brilliance of the general Subodai. So, 
Chinggis Khan's eldest son, Jochi, was put under the tutelage of Subotai and they were sent on a scouting mission westwards. Uh, they scouted around the Caucasus region. They they went, did a complete uh, circum, uh, circumnavigation of the Caspian Sea, I believe. Uh, they even scouted in parts of Russia and so on. There were battles and skirmishes, but there were, this was not a mission of conquest. It was a mission of scouting to see what else is out there that we don't know about. And Jochi participated in this. And various other sons of Chinggis participated in various military campaigns under the tutelage of various generals and various armed divisions of the Mongol army. So Chinggis Khan did put all of his sons in harm's way. It was for them to survive or not. If they survived, then they were worthy of being uh, Khans in their own right when the time came. And of course, they would have to obey all the um, all the rules that every Mongol soldier had to obey. There was no exception made for Chinggis Khan's sons. So I would say that he uh, held his sons to the same principles that every other Mongol soldier was, was held and to his own principles. Now, after he died, things changed, right? <clears throat> after Chinggis Khan died, his son Ogodai Khan became the overall great Khan or Khagan of the Mongols. And various other sons of his were given big parcels of land in the four corners of the Mongol Empire. And then they went their own way. That's how the Mongol Empire eventually <clears throat> fragmented because they did not quite follow the principles of their father. They, some of them, uh, conquered without need to, without any real need for conquering. For instance, Chinggis Khan conquered only when there were just causes for war. He went to war only when there was a genuine need to retaliate against some kind of uh, wrongdoing. In the case of his sons, they conquered just because they could. So that is one difference between Genghis Khan and his sons. And that's how things uh, changed after Genghis Khan's death. But I would say that he, as long as he was alive, he held everybody to the same principles. And uh, his rule was a rule of merit. It was a meritocracy. Nobody was given any undue favors. Aditya says, Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein are portrayed as monsters under whom their countries became hell holes. Some Google pictures show the opposite of this. Your views on these two different people, please. I would not characterize their countries as hell holes while those two guys were in power. Look at, <clears throat> look at the record of Saddam Hussein. Yes, there's no doubt he was a dictator. There's no doubt he was a brutal dictator. You know what? Every country has its own customs. Every country has its own culture. It is just futile to try and impose the same system on every country, which is what kind of what's happening today. Everybody needs to have democracy. Are Baba, <laughs> some cultures simply... Uh, democracy simply doesn't work in some cultures. Some people are just too violent and some, too brutal. Some cultures are such that you need a heavy hand to rule over them. And if you look at the past four, five thousand years of history in the Middle East, you see the same old thing. Beheadings, warfare, and so on and so forth. You know, it's always been the same. During the time of king, uh, of various kings of Mesopotamia, 
uh, what are the names? Sargon of Akkad, King Rimush, uh, <coughs> Ashur Banipal, Ashur Nasirpal, and so on and so forth. It's always been brutality. This region has a history of brutality. No matter what religion was in was in vogue, it's always been a brutal place. And when you have people who are accustomed to that sort of brutal life <coughs> for 5,000 years, you need a certain kind of ruler to, to keep law and order, right? And I think Saddam Hussein is, is something that emerged out of that milieu in Mesopotamia, in, in, in Iraq. And he did what he had to do to impose law and order upon his people. He knew what kind of people his people were, right? <clears throat> And if you look at the record, if you look at the kind of <coughs> governance that he established, it was, I mean, during his rule, Iraq was very peaceful. Iraq was very orderly. There was law and order. There was justice. Maybe the justice was brutal, but it was effective. And, uh, and what you also had was that women were quite empowered. And there was no sectarian strife, Sunni versus Shia, Kurd versus Arab. None of that nonsense was tolerated under Saddam Hussein. Women had equal rights as men, and Iraq was truly a secular state. Doesn't matter what your religion was, even if you were Christian, doesn't did not matter, right? Everybody got the same uh, treatment. So it was actually a well-oiled, well, well-functioning society. And then what do the Americans do? They bombed democracy into Iraq. And look at Iraq today. It is a hellhole today. It was not a hellhole under Saddam. Yes, I am sure there was oppression of certain people and he, he and so on and so forth. He was a brutal dictator. That's just how it is. That's how it has always been in the Middle East. Do you think the Arab states are different? The Arab countries, do you think they are different? Do you think Iran is different? Come on. So that's how it was. And similarly for, uh, for Libya, Muammar Gaddafi, you know, the Americans have always portrayed him as a monster and eventually they got to him, they had him bumped off in the most atrocious way imaginable, whatever. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, that's how it goes. But even if you look at Libya under Gaddafi, it was a reasonably orderly place. There was law and order, brutal, heavy-handed law and order, but it was still there. And after the death, the the death, execution, whatever you want to call it, of Muammar Gaddafi, see what hell Libya has descended into. There are open slave markets in Libya today. <coughs> Excuse me. Slave markets, human smuggling, what not. There's no actual government, there's no law and order. Today, it's a hellhole. But apparently, they have elections there. Yes, democracy wins. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's the truth. You know, every country doesn't need democracy. Every country has its own customs. And it's just wrong to try to impose Western values and Western ways of doing things on countries that, well, don't need that. Susovan Pratihar says, uh, as a quantum physicist, what's your opinion on how homeopathic medicines work? Okay, here we go. Lots of people are going to hate me now. <laughs> I think homeopathy is a joke. First of all, 
there is a distinction between homeopathy and ayurveda homeopathy is not ayurveda today in india i think lots of people believe it's the same thing it's not homeopathy is something that emerged out of uh, 19th or 18th century germany i think i think it came from europe most likely in germany most likely in the 19th century some stupid uh, pseudo scientific concepts um i don't even know what those are but essentially homeopathic is a, homeopathy is about very very low dose, doses of whatever substance you're ingesting you know <clears throat> it's called a homeopathic dose which means it is essentially useless so do homeopathic medicines work no they don't work it doesn't work at all and i'm sure that i'm going to get lots of booze for this but come on facts are facts so it, it's nothing to do with a quantum being a quantum physicist or, or any such thing but it's just a scientific known fact that the dosages are so low that it simply can't work you know in homeopathy and the principles are also not really not quite scientific okay uh, help from the west is not the right answer they help for the reason read this book startup nation so i had i have a video click about a clip about israel why does tiny israel dominate the entire uh, middle east and i said one of the reasons for israel's success is that it has been given it has received a lot of aid from the west mostly from the united states but also from the jewish diaspora across the western <clears throat> the western world right so this gentleman says uh, help from the west is not the right answer read the help for a reason read the book startup nation so this is see no no i'm not trying to uh, make fun of this gentleman but this is an example of too little knowledge and thinking you know everything if you talk about yes israel is a startup nation today there is this very famous book called startup nation but do you think israel was a startup nation in 1947 israel was a ragtag new nation <clears throat> barely surviving and it was beset by enemies on all sides there were no startups at that time sir so <clears throat> try you have to look at history from a larger perspective with the proper nuance proper context okay you read a book called startup nation and you think that the west helps israel and invest there because they have startups are baba i am talking about the whole history of israel from its inception there were no startups at the time israel was struggling for survival and it survived because of aid from the jewish diaspora across europe and the us and also because of aid from west western countries eventually to a large extent from the united states that is the correct answer so if you have read one book it doesn't give you all the knowledge please do not have this attitude that i read this therefore i know everything i don't think i know everything at all i am always eager to learn more and i i see people like this saying no you are wrong read this book then you will have all the, all the knowledge come on please 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 don't have this sort of attitude it's it's going to hurt you in the long run wow long question <clears throat> my name is fatima i am from kerala i have a request can you please make a video about uh, champakaraman pillai the forgotten freedom fighter who first used the slogan jai hind he asked help from the imperial germany <coughs> and during 194 later in 1934 he was assassinated by hitler's nazi police <coughs> 
He asked aid from the German Empire. He was involved in bombarding British ships at Madras port, etc., etc., etc. All that. All right. So, uh, who was Champakraman Pillai? He was a freedom fighter. He was a member of the provincial <clears throat> government in 1919 or thereabouts. Uh, so, this government was set up in Kabul, was it? In Afghanistan, certainly, with the help of the Germans. He was part of a group of freedom fighters in Berlin, I believe, at some point in time. Very interesting person. And like you say, it looks like he was assassinated or poisoned. He was poisoned by the Germans because for whatever reason, he was no longer very convenient for them. And it looks like, I mean, it is alleged that he was part of a German warships raid on the, the port of Madras. The German battlecruiser uh, Emden, like you say, most likely. And this ship raided the port of Madras, opened fire and did some damage around the time of the First World War, I believe. So I don't have all the dates and all the details in mind. But yes, this gentleman is very interesting. He had a very adventurous life. Died young, most likely assassinated by the, by the Nazis. So yeah, I could certainly look deeper into this in the future and maybe make a separate video about it. So yeah. Animesh says, do you think authors and researchers today have more access and freedom to study and write about history than in the Gandhi Nehruvian era? Oh, for sure. For sure. First of all, we did not have the internet in those days. And there was there were so many academic restrictions and government restrictions on people. Um, you were not allowed to do certain kinds of research. If you were a professor and if you did the wrong kind of, if you had the wrong kinds of inclinations, you would be marginalized or you would lose your job and that sort of thing. There would be all kinds of harassment. This is a story that has happened over and over again in the Indian academia. Even if you manage to write a book, you would find no publishers. So that's <coughs> something that was very much common in the Gandhi, Nehruvian and overall Congress regime era. era. I think the situation has changed only after 2014, more or less, you know, that people have been able to speak openly about a variety of things. So, yes, I agree. There's more freedom now. And we should cherish that freedom. Okay, Wisdom Bro says, apart from its geographical location, why does every country pay attention to Djibouti these days? Well, to explain, I will obviously have to go to the map, right? So, let us pull up a map. The map. <coughs> Excuse me. So, this is the world. And let's go to Djibouti. So where is Djibouti? It's right here. See, if you see my mouse pointer, I'm pointing at India. Now, if you go west, southwest from Mumbai, let's say, across the so-called Arabian Sea, you come to the Gulf of Aden here. If you go further west, you come to Djibouti. This little tiny country here is called Djibouti. Now, why is this country, why is there, like you say, attention to this place? So first of all, you have the Bab al-Mandeb here. For instance, uh, let me show you what it is. So, if you look at this narrow strait here, this is called the Bab al Mandab Strait, and this is the most likely location across which the last great out of Africa migration happened. The last great migration of Homo sapiens about 75,000 years ago <clears throat> most likely happened from here. 
<coughs> so that is the uh, that is the uh, migration that gave rise to the human population which exists out of africa today and this migration is believed to have happened about 75000 years before today from here so that is one reason why uh, djibouti is uh, interesting for many people especially for uh, historians geneticists anthropologists and so on the second reason <clears throat> the more pertinent reason why djibouti is so interesting let us let us go into it right so let's find the satellite image <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> let's go deeper into djibouti city so here you have the djibouti ambuli international airport it's just an international airport but not quite let's go deeper into this place so if you look at the aircraft here there is something uh, okay there is something called camp limonier here which is a us military base if you look at the aircraft sitting on this uh, tarmac these are american military aircraft as you can see let's see some more aircraft let's see what else do we have there have to be more check this out again american military aircraft sitting there do we have any more let's see what we have here these seem to be civilian aircraft over here most likely this again is an american military aircraft so as you can see this is a us military base air force base it is used for uh, domestic i mean no, not domestic for civilian civilian air traffic but again you can see <clears throat> military aircraft over here so this is a us air force base it's not only a us air force base there's something else as well here <clears throat> if you see this <coughs> if you see this aircraft it's most likely a japanese military aircraft and if you see here this is a japanese military base it's the only japanese military base outside of japanese soil djibouti so right here this aircraft this airport is home to an american air force base and a japanese military base let's look further at djibouti what else do we have we have another airport here shabelle airport right that's what it says now let's look at the kind of aircraft you have sitting here let's see do we have any aircraft oh yeah i can see something here now what do these aircraft look like don't these aircraft look like predator predator drones the unmanned aerial vehicles that the americans operate long long term loitering aircraft that uh, loiter for hours and hours at an altitude of 10 11000 km meters not kilometers meters so as you can see this is another us military base they seem to be flying drones from here and maybe something else that may not be visible to us so this is a second air base that the americans use now that's not the end of the story let's look here what do we find here this is a chinese people's liberation army naval base isn't it strange you have a, a couple of us bases a japanese base and a chinese base as well weird so this entire facility here is a chinese naval base in such an interesting location right in a key location it it's kind of located at this uh, choke point this naval choke choke point so that is the reason why djibouti is interesting and uh, why every country pays attention to djibouti 
these days i just showed you a very brief overview from the from the map uh, about what's going on there so yeah it's an interesting place isn't it okay radha apte says uh, when we search on the internet about maps or world maps in the images section the map of india is rarely shown correctly we have territorial disputes in aksai chain and pok but still those are not part of either china or pakistan and so on and so forth should our government take strong actions against those websites who show our map incorrectly or else what should be our take on this <coughs> you know there are millions of websites in the world you think our government has the time <laughs> you do you think our government has the time the bandwidth to go and search every website and and demand that you correct the map no it's a waste of time our energy and our effort should be spent in correcting the facts on the ground they are showing these what you call incorrect maps of india because what they show reflects reflects the ground reality whether we like it or not the portions of the map that are shown as not part of india <clears throat> are currently occupied by these foreign countries either pakistan in pok uh, gilgit gilgit baltistan or china aksai chin and various other parts these are currently under foreign occupation and that's why these websites they just show what reflects the ground reality so india <clears throat> instead of wasting its time trying to fight every single website owner what india should do is try to correct the facts on the ground now that's going to take some doing that's going to take some time but that is where our energy and efforts should be focused not on fighting various anonymous website owners <clears throat> kartik says can you please tell us about the silurian hypothesis right the silurian hypothesis <clears throat> excuse me one second <clears throat> So imagine you're living in a house on on rent. <clears throat> Lots of people live on rent, right? So when you live in a house on rent, <clears throat> and it's a it's not a brand new house, then it means that before you lived there, some other people lived there, and these people you never you will most likely never know who they were. And sometimes it may be so that <clears throat> such people lived there for like two three decades, and the house was theirs. and now you are occupying that it's possible right similarly isn't it possible that the planet will live on the planet will live in was long ago occupied by some other civilization not aliens but a civilization that emerged on our own planet maybe a few hundred million years before today they emerged they lived for a long time and then for whatever reason they disappeared <clears throat> now we know for a fact that tectonic activity is such that it kind of erases all traces of uh, what happened on the surface every few hundred million years uh, or even every few million years <clears throat> so for instance we don't find traces of dinosaurs on the surface mostly except in very select locations that are exposed to the uh, air typically you have to dig for dinosaur fossils right and the dinosaurs died out about 65 million years before today now imagine if if a intelligent species or civilization existed on the planet a billion years before today 
would we find any trace of that no because tectonic activity would have ensured that everything would have gone underground long 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 ago under the oceans under the ground we may never ever be able to find traces of that see our planet is about four and a half billion years old billion with a b and life as we know it has existed existed on the planet for about three and a half billion years the earliest incontrovertible evidence for life <clears throat> goes back about three and a half billion years before today so that has given <clears throat> plenty of time for many civilizations to rise and fall and we may never know about any of them in in case there was any intelligent civilization that existed before us so that is the silurian hypothesis that maybe there was an intelligent civilization of of beings on our planet just as intelligent as us who had an extensive urban globe spanning civilization just like what we have today and for whatever reason maybe an asteroid strike maybe a cometary strike maybe climate change whatever for some reason they all died out and over the hundreds of millions of years and billions of years all traces of their evidence has been eroded away and uh, buried underground because of tectonic activity it is very plausible that such a scenario could have happened so that's what we call the silurian hypothesis and there is something we have to take seriously <clears throat> Arjun says, do you think SpaceX will become the next space superpower if it gets more funding? Do you think SpaceX lacks funding? Do you think SpaceX is not a space superpower? Let me give you a statistic. SpaceX launches more rockets per month than ISRO launches in a whole year. digest that SpaceX launches more rockets in a single month than ISRO launches in a, in a whole year sometimes in two years <clears throat> and the kinds of the kind of rockets that SpaceX launches are orders of magnitude more powerful than the most powerful ISRO, powerful ISRO lock, rocket <clears throat> the GSLV Mark III <clears throat> And SpaceX is currently developing the most powerful rocket in human history. So SpaceX is the 10,000 ton gorilla in the room. It's bigger than NASA. It's bigger than Lockheed Martin. It's bigger than the United Launch Alliance. It's bigger than the Russians. It's bigger than the Chinese. It's bigger than everybody else already. It is already the biggest space launching power in the world. It is already a superpower. It doesn't lack anything. Right. They are building multiple rockets at, at any given point in time. How many rockets is ISRO building right now? <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's sad when you try to compare ISRO with these companies. And the thing is, ISRO has been around since how long? 70s, 1970s? SpaceX is a company that was born in the 2000s. It nearly went bankrupt so many times, multiple times. It was on the brink of disaster for such a long period of time. It was one rocket failure away from closing permanently. And <clears throat> it managed to survive. And now it's thriving. So that's how you do it. That's the kind of ambition and drive and focus you need if you want to succeed. 
<coughs> one would love to see that in India, in ISRO, but it's not the scientists' fault in ISRO because they don't control their budgets, they don't control the funding, they don't control the direction of their work. It's the government that does it. <clears throat> okay, next question. Priyanka says, what's your opinion on the latest cryptocurrency craze? Will it be good or bad for the future? How will the world change? Will it get rid of banks as middlemen? Will it control inflation globally? Please share your opinion. So it's too early to tell, but you know, from the reactions of various governments who are trying to regulate the cryptocurrency uh, the entire paradigm of cryptocurrency, you can see that governments are worried because governments want to regulate things. They want a control. As you can see, during the pandemic, they want control. They're trying to acquire more and more control over the people, over everything in their lives. <clears throat> and cryptocurrency, especially the blockchain technology, is something that will take away control from the governments because it will decentralize everything. And the banks will no longer be able to act as middlemen and rake in all the profits, right? So the Chinese have banned cryptocurrency. India wants to ban cryptocurrency and, and so on and so forth. So in a way, it's good if cryptocurrency is there because it uh, removes all the, it takes away the power from the middlemen, the banks, the corporates, right? Uh, it can also control inflation, but well, to some extent. So for, in, for instance, <clears throat> There are multiple block versions of blockchain in the market today. So blockchain technology, I'm not going to explain what it is. It's, it will be a whole different thing. But for instance, Bitcoin, uh, it's blockchain. See, Bitcoin has no boss. Bitcoin has no owner. The blockchain is public. And Bitcoin it has a finite number. So there's only a finite number of Bitcoins, which means that you cannot keep printing new Bitcoins as, as and when you like. Which means Bitcoin is exactly the same as digital gold. It has a finite value. You cannot put in more just to make more money and so on. So that's why Bitcoin is good. Now, look if you look at Ethereum, Ethereum does have an owner. And Ethereum can be minted. You can create more Ethereum if you want. So, you know, it all depends. It, not every cryptocurrency is the panacea for all the ills. And uh, so it's still kind of like a, a Wild West kind of situation. Uh, lots of people are diving into this. Lots of new cryptocurrencies are being created. You give me two, two months, I could create, uh, code my own blockchain and issue my own cryptocurrency. Chavda coin. Would you like that? <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. So right now, it's kind of murky and confusing, but if it is done right, then it can certainly empower lots of people. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, it it could possibly good be good, and it could also be dangerous for governments. For instance, uh, there are lots of uses of of cryptocurrency that can help anti-national activities, terrorist activities, and so on. You know. So there are good reasons for governments to be worried, but there are also uh, good uses of Bitcoin and also bad uses, like everything else. So that's where right now I think in the future it may be regulated to a great extent and we'll have to see. <clears throat> okay. 
Dilon de Silva says, what do you think about General Naravane's statement on Kashmir in which he said that he's not averse to demilitarizing Siachen? <clears throat> do you think it will be a good choice to choose him as a CDS? Listen, he's not making a statement in a personal capacity. He's not a schoolboy who doesn't know what to say and what not to say. Right? When he makes any statement, it's a statement on behalf of the Indian government and the Indian army. It's a statement that has been vetted already. <clears throat> and I think the media has <clears throat> kind of blown this out of proportion. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> this statement has been blown out of proportion. He is not in any way suggesting that we are going to just leave Siachen and give it over to the Pakistanis. What he actually said that is that the Indian government, Indian army is not averse to the idea of demilitarizing Siachen sometime in the future if these, these, these conditions are met. That's what he meant. And what conditions should be met? That the current demarcation boundary between the Indian uh, territory, Indian held territory and the Pakistani held territory should be formalized in a, in a treaty. And then both sides should withdraw, and this withdrawal should be properly monitored, and uh, all that sort of thing. So there need to be need to be checks and measures and all those things. In that case, we may possibly, perhaps, in the future, consider demilitarizing Siachen. That's the kind of statement he made. He's not saying we are going to make it. We're going to make it happen tomorrow. He's not, he also did not say it's my personal opinion that we want to. We should leave. None of these statements is correct. But that's the way the media portrays things. Right? So that's what I can say about this. Now, it has nothing to do with him being a good choice or bad choice for a CDS. That's for the government to decide. I am kind of perplexed that we still haven't chosen a CDS. Ideally, in, in a well-oiled machine, in a well-oiled system, when you have a CDS, you should have uh, number two, number three, number four, at least three, four people waiting in line in case any unforeseen thing happens to immediately become the next CDS and, and take things forward. It's kind of surprising that the next CDS has still not been chosen. But, well, let's see how that goes. <clears throat> okay, let me take one more question for today. This is by Praful. You said that the that electoral system slows the country down and pulls it down. So why Canada, Australia and New Zealand are prosperous nations <coughs> and are still growing in democracy? Please tell us the truth behind their systems and as well. <clears throat> See, I said an electoral system with every, every elections every four years and state elections every one or two years and all that slows down a country. I spoke about the governance of a country, not the economy of a country, right? Of course, it will have an economic uh, impact as well. Now, so you say that Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc. are prosperous nations. They are still doing well despite democracy. Here's a question for you, my friend. Did these countries become prosperous because of democracy? What is the source, the root of the prosperity of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States? How did these nations, and, and UK as well, how did these nations become prosperous? 
are you trying to say they became prosperous because they have democracy no they became prosperous the uk became prosperous because of its plunder of india 45 trillion dollars worth of plunder that's why the uk became prosperous because of theft plunder how did the us and canada become prosperous well the us is stolen territory stolen from the from the natives canada is stolen territory stolen from the natives it is the europeans mainly the the british the british the english who stole this entire continent from the natives and then plundered it, it's still being plundered for resources so that's where the immense wealth comes from they got an entire continent for free they stole an entire continent from their from the true owners a very rich continent the the real owners the real natives had never plundered the land that's why the land was so fertile and so full of natural resources and gifts and that is the source of the prosperity of the united states and canada same goes for, goes for australia and new zealand these are stolen australia and new zealand are also stolen lands australia is a stolen continent new zealand is a beautiful rich fabulously resource rich two islands that again has been stolen from the natives that is the source of the prosperity not your democracy it's not democracy that has made the west prosperous it is theft loot pillage plunder that has made the west prosperous and now democracy is slowly slowly <laughs> uh well you know when they stole all this all this territory and all this wealth they were not democratic countries those were they were mostly monarchies and autocratic countries at the time now you have democracy and you can see that these nations are still slowly slowly towards <clears throat> civil war but do you like it or not so that is the truth behind their systems shall we take one more question for today all right um anuj says what are your thoughts about the lca tejas its capabilities and how it's compared to its rival and the first and all that it's not being a good fighter and its impact on the indian aviation industry i think this is a brilliant fighter jet <clears throat> small lightweight fighter very capable fourth generation fighter and you know the best thing about the lca tejas we designed and developed it developed it ourselves yes it's a it's the first uh, fighter in a very long time we've developed but our capabilities matured our design and development and manufacturing capabilities matured as a result of <clears throat> building a fighter jet that actually flies and actually performs quite well so now the newer iterations the lca mark 2 LCA Mark 1A LCA Mark 2 are going to be even better and then we're going to base a whole different uh, bunch of jets on the on the basic design of the LCA <clears throat> you have the twin engine deck based fighter TEDBF you have the AMCA the advanced uh, medium combat aircraft and then you have the uh, i think there's one more fighter jet that we are uh, designing so these are all going to benefit from all the pain and frustration that our engineers and scientists 
had to go through while making Tejas a uh, top class uh, uh, combat worthy aircraft. So we will not have to reinvent the wheel, uh, wheel all over again for these new aircraft. So that is the real value of the Tejas. We put in place all the technologies. We developed all the technologies from scratch. Most of them, the, the radar, the avionics, the fuselage and so many other things. And now we have the knowledge, the know-how of how to take that to the next level. So that is the real um, value of all the pain that our people went went through. The All the delays that we had are because of politicians that kept changing the specifications, right? Otherwise, we would have had the Tejas <clears throat> flying 20 years before, the, before it did. But anyhow, whatever happened, happened. And now we can take the next steps in building a fifth generation aircraft, which will come up in the next 10, 10 years or so. Okay, my dear friends, I'm going to end this session right here. And uh, so thank you for all the questions. And I will see you tomorrow in a live chat session. So until then, take care. And I will see you tomorrow. Thank you. Bye.